about, uh, uh, to learn about life from the book of Nehemiah, but just one verse that stood out to me, I'd like to challenge you about, and I hope it'll just be an encouragement to your heart, it has been uh, to mine. All right, you're, hopefully you're there, and we'll read in just uh, a few moments, but um, have you ever been to a conference where they had a meet and greet time? Uh, where your job was to uh, learn, meet someone that, first of all, you'd never met before, get a name, and then you're supposed to learn something about them. Now, I, I, I hate those things. I really do. I despise those things. But that's probably because I'd rather just, you know, sit and listen to someone talk or do whatever they need to do than go around and shake everyone's hand, unlike other people who may like to do those kind of things. But uh, anyway, uh, if you're ever involved in one of those things, uh, you know that you're not going to get intimate details from anyone unless they're really strange, you know? I mean, if, if you were to be part of that and you were called upon to say, who did you meet? You know, then you would say, well, I met, I met Joe and I met, I met Ray and uh, Ray's married, you know, or something like that. If you were asked to tell us one thing that you learned uh, from, from that person. Now, uh, that is true because no one's going to reveal real secret things. No one's going to reveal any deep things about anyone else. At least that's not what you'd expect uh, to happen in a meet and greet. Now, if we had a meet and greet here with people that you, you know and you know very well, maybe you might speak about a few things you know, as we're shaking hands. We haven't done that in a long time. All right, we won't force you to do that. But if we were to do that, you might actually talk to someone a little bit, at least for a minute or two. I know what you do when you're, we're greeting one another because no one ever gets back to their seat. So, uh, you know, and you might get into some more details and learn some detailed things about, about someone. And maybe you could share a, a little bit deeper things, although we wouldn't probably necessarily do that, especially if they were given a prayer request or something to that effect. Today, I want, to, I want to just take some time and introduce you to Nehemiah's God. He's going to tell us what he knows about God in a very different way. Um, it was in Nehemiah chapter 1, actually, as I was reading uh, early this morning, that I came across uh, verse 5, where Nehemiah begins to pray to God. And I think most of you already know the story, what's going on in the book of Nehemiah. He's going to God's going to use Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, the, the city has been decimated. Um, in fact, he hears that in the first three verses as he asks questions. He's serving in the, in the court of the king. Um, and a lot of things could be said about it. But in verse 5, he begins his prayer. And uh, as I was reading through the prayer, there's so many powerful things in it. But verse 5 just jumped out at, uh, at me. Because in it, he just gives us a tremendous picture as he approaches God, as he begins his prayer of who God really is. And by the way, why his prayer was going to mean something and was going to do something. Now, this prayer is the catalyst that opens the door for God to work in a mighty way uh, through him to, to rebuild the walls, to encourage the people of Israel. And, uh, and so... We just see some wonderful things. Look at what he says in verse 5. And said, this is when he begins this prayer, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, 
and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. And he continues on with the prayer. But I really do want you to focus in on verse 5, and I just want to ask you to think about this question, who is your God? And I hope it will encourage you to do exactly what Nehemiah was doing here. As he approached God, he just knew that there was a God in heaven that he could ask, and he could expect God to do great things. So let's pray and ask God to help us now as we look at our God as he is introduced by Nehemiah. Father, I do pray that you would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts and help us to understand who you are uh, in a better way. I pray that we would be challenged, that we'd be stirred, that we would have the depth of understanding and the picture of God that Nehemiah does. And may it drive our prayer life, may it drive our activities this week, may it drive everything that we do. May we understand that we serve a God who is bigger than any problem, who is greater than any situation, who is worthy of worship, of honor, of praise, of glory. And I ask you, Lord God, that you would just, uh, that you really would just remind us of, of who you are and encourage our hearts this evening. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so... He introduces God to us. At least his prayer is one where he's talking directly to God. So it's not really necessarily a testimony, nor is it, an, uh, if you would, an introduction he's given to us to God. But he does share with us a number of things about God. So let's just see his attributes. In fact, you can help me with it, all right? I'm going to have you help me with the message. What do we see and what are the things we are told about God in verse 5? I beseech thee, what do we learn? Come on, help me out. Okay, he's the God of heaven. First truth that uh, I put down for my notes was an almighty God. You say, almighty God, where do we get that picture? Well, notice the words again. I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven. Now, that statement is very powerful. If you go back and you look at verse Four, he makes a statement uh, before he prays, and he says he, uh, he mourned certain days, he fasted, and he prayed where, where? Before the God of heaven. You say, well, what is the point and what is he getting across? Well, when he comes to God, he understands who he is, that he is not just the God of heaven, but he is the Lord God of heaven. Two different words, two different titles given for God. The word Lord would be the supreme one, the, the ruling one, the controlling one, indicating that he is the almighty one. He is the one that's in control in heaven. Now, it's encouraging to know, isn't it? He's in control on the earth as well, and that's an important thing for us to know. And obviously, Nehemiah understood that truth because as he prays, he's going to ask God to do something that couldn't be done in his own power and uh, to help him accomplish something no way he could accomplish unless God was involved. And so he comes and he says, God, I know you are the almighty God. You are the supreme one. And then the word God is the, uh, the eternal self-existent one, right? So he's coming to the God who is in control and he is the self-existent, the eternal God of heaven. Um, you know, when we come to God in prayer, 
maybe we should maybe we should incorporate some of these things and praise to God. But maybe as well, we just need to come to God understanding who He is. You know, we we uh, we just learn how to pray certain ways, don't we? Dear Father, Lord, uh, I love verse five because it challenges me to um, do more than just come and say, okay, now, Father, please do this, or dear God, or Lord, do this. Um, he really thought through. At least it seems to, 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 to me that there is a, a real intensity in his prayer and a real understanding. Look, I am coming to the Lord God of heaven. I'm coming to the supreme ruler of all. Now, it's great to be able to go to the, to the top dog, all right? I, wow, that wasn't the right way to put it, all right? I, I didn't mean to be irreverent. But it's great when you can go to the top, to the top person in the chain of, of command, isn't it? And say, this is what I need. I don't know about you, but uh, I find that whenever I call any kind of service place, any kind of service department, you know, you always start at the, the low end of the totem pole and you get the person that can't even talk English. You know, you know what I'm talking about. They're, they're, uh, they're, of, of some, they're some, from some foreign country and, and you can hardly understand them, and you finally explain what's going on, and they don't give you a satisfactory answer. So you say, I would like to speak to your supervisor. Supervisor comes on, can't understand them either. And, you know, and then you try to go up the chain of command, if, and probably if, if you talk to the supervisor, there's no one above them. At least they'll tell you there's no one above them. And it's frustrating, isn't it? It's encouraging, as I came to this, to re be reminded, and as uh, Nehemiah reminds us as he shares with us his actual prayer, that, look, when I pray, I'm coming to the, I'm coming to the chief one. Look, I, I'm coming to the one who's in control. I'm coming to the one who, who has all of heaven and earth at his disposal. I'm coming to the almighty God. I'm coming to the supreme God, the one who reigns and rules over all, and the one who is still in charge, even though many people don't want to admit it and many aren't living like it. And uh, it wonderfully encourages me as a believer to know that I can come each and every day, every morning, every at noon, at night. I can come when I'm driving down the road, and I can talk to, I can talk to the one who is in control. Have you thought about that lately? It ought to encourage your heart. It really should. So he comes and he first tells us then he's the Lord God of heaven. Now, what's the next thing we see? What do we find in our list? Okay, he's a great and terrible God. Really two things. First thing we find, he's a great God. Now, that doesn't mean that much anymore, does it? I mean, we call a guy great because he can throw a basketball in a hoop, because he can throw a football a long way, uh, because he has the ability to talk, you know, and, and impress people or whatever. We, we talk about people as great, and sometimes that, uh, that title becomes, if you want, unimportant. But when Nehemiah is bringing this out, he's just reminding us that we serve a God not only who is in control of all things, but we serve a God who is able. He's a great God, and he is great. All right, if, if there's anyone we could use the word great for, it would be the one that 
that Nehemiah is praying to and the one that you and I pray to on a daily basis. I serve a great God. His prayer is, Lord, I know you're in control of all things, and I also know you are a great God. In other words, there's no question that what I'm going to come and talk to you about, you can do something about. Just as he is the one who's in control of all things and can work in a situation, he also is a great God, and there's nothing beyond his limit, beyond his ability. Hey, I know uh, God doesn't always, if you would, miraculously work in the sense that he just takes away illnesses. Um, if he did, I'd be asking him to take away my allergies right now. It just, just hit me. It's not, I'm not crying about you folks. I just want you to know it's not, not that you're, you're making me cry. Well, okay, we won't mention any. Um, you know, if, if we could expect necessarily those things, but, you know, that's not God, beyond God's ability. The situations you and I face are are not beyond his strength. Look, we serve a great God. And when I look at the rest of the book of Nehemiah, I'm reminded of that very fact. And so I find a man who comes to God and he says, okay, Lord, I know who you are. And before I even make any requests, I just want to praise you for being, I want to praise you for, first of all, being the Lord God of heaven, that there is no one above you, that you are the authority in all heaven and earth and everything runs according to your command because you're the supreme God who has always existed. Lord, I'm thankful as well that you're a great God. Um, so many times, by the way, he did, this isn't just lip service. He believed this. You say, how do I know that? Well, the rest of the book, but look in Nehemiah chapter four. Just take a moment, look over there. You know, they, had, they were threatened, don't you? Uh, a number of different times. There was a lot of fear amongst the Jews because Nehemiah now is, is back in his homeland at, and he's in Jerusalem and he's seeking to rebuild the walls and there are threats being made. And look at what he says in verse 14. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Which is, and what do we see? Okay, so look, look, this wasn't a guy just saying, okay, Lord, dear Father, in verse 5. This is a guy who believed that God is a great and terrible God. He brings that up in this verse, and so he says, hey, hey, look, look, people, listen to me. I've already talked to him, and he's already worked wonderfully, and he's already proved himself, and I know he will prove himself again. This God is able what you're praying about, what you're asking, what you're concerned about, what you're facing. God is able to handle this. Look, we don't have to stop the work. We don't have to quit. We don't have to say, oh, it can't be done because there is a God in heaven who is a great God. So never forget that. So many times in scripture we find that truth and we don't even have time to, to dig into all them. I came across just, just one in the book of Deuteronomy, which uh, the Old Testament has some wonderful verses reminding us of the character of God. Deuteronomy 7.21 says, Thou shalt not be affrighted at them, for the Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible. Both those attributes were something that the Israelites knew. And here's the thing. You say, 
Well, sure, we all know this to be true, but understand the context in which this is found. Where is Nehemiah? When he prays in, in chapter 1, verse 5, where is Nehemiah? When he prays in Nehemiah 1, 5, no. In chapter 4, he is. He's made it to Jerusalem. But where is he in, in chapter 1? Okay, he's in captivity. He's serving in the court of the king because God allowed them to go into captivity. And I got to say that verse 5 then really gives us an amazing picture because this man who was in captivity still had been taught and understood that the God of heaven is the God of heaven and that God is a great God. And even though he had allowed them to go into captivity, which many of the Jews blamed God for that, well, where is God? God hasn't worked on our behalf. Nehemiah didn't have that attitude, nor did Daniel or many of the others that were in the captivity we can read about. They understood there's a great God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew there was a great God, didn't they? And so as he prays, he just reveals to us and reminds us, we serve a great God. I read about a woman in a community. He was, she was well known for a lady who just had faith in God. Seemed to. She had a great calm in the midst of many trials that had come into her life. And another woman who had never met this lady but heard of her came to visit one day. And her desire was, I want to find out the secret of her calm, happy, peaceful life. And so when she met her, she said this, you're the woman with great faith I've heard so much about. And the lady said, no, I'm not the woman with the great faith. I am the woman with the little faith in a great God. And, and that's the right perspective. God, who's greater than the problem. So it's no wonder he could pray this way. Now he's the great God, but then he's the what? That doesn't sound right, does it? And that's because our understanding of the word doesn't, isn't a good one. We, oh, that's terrible. Okay, but when it's used here, what is it in reference to? You know? Awesome, wonderful would be, would be part of it. Actually is the word that's translated many times, afraid. It is. Uh, this is, the, uh, when he says that God is a terrible God, it's the word for fear, and it also carries the idea of reverence. Reverence. Fear. By the way, someone you fear properly, you should reverence. And both of these are brought into play. So when he says he's the terrible God, uh, we would certainly understand that as awesome because anyone who is due reverence would be an awesome God. But the word literally is the word used to describe someone who's fearful. So you might see this word describing someone who's afraid of a situation. You might also then see it in reference to God. He's a terrible God. Not bad. He's not bad, but he is a God who is uh, someone we should fear and someone we should reverence and respect. So his prayer is not, God, do this for me. By the way, you know our prayers can be that way. His prayer is not, well, Lord, look at my situation. It's time for you to do work. No, it's, it's God, I, I come to you and I understand you're a great God, and you can do anything, but I also understand you're a God to be feared, and I do fear you. And I have a respect for who you are. 
And that is a quality that is really being lost in our day. People have no respect anymore. You, you do see that. At least there, people have very little respect. Um, uh, we see it. Well, we see it in the way people treat police. Don't we? Um, used to be that uh, people use titles. Now, you say, well, I, I think it's good we're getting rid of titles. I, I don't know. There's a sense in which people should be re respected. Um, I still call my doctor doctor. I, I, I don't know. They always introduce themselves by their first name now. You know, I'm Tom. Uh, you know, I'm Joe. And, and I still want to call him doctor. And you say, well, well, let's get rid of the formality. Well, here's a guy that, um, well, at least I hope he's, he's worthy of respect. There's a guy that has um, gone to school far longer than any of you or I have, who has uh, given himself to, um, well, it is lucrative. I, we understand that. But he's also given himself to serve people. And he's, he's due some respect. He is. Um, I don't like it when I see kids calling adults by their first name. And I know our society is going that direction to be shown for people, a reverence for position, police. Um, you know, I, I know there's derogatory terms, but I think Christians need to be careful about not calling them cops and other, other terms that we should show respect because they are actually servants of God according to Romans chapter 13. Now, that's, I know, another message probably for another time as we say so often, but... Um, that kind of reverence and respect that is just being lost in society where everyone is just good buddies is something that is very dangerous in our relationship with God. In fact, quite honestly, um, a lot of churches even in the, in the New Evangelical bent are, you know, talk about God being this, our, our good buddy, you know, our pal, our friend, and he just loves us so much, and he just wants to be our good friend that we say. Well, there is a sense in which that's true. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But there's also a sense that he is the God of heaven and earth. He is to be both feared and revered. You do know that and I think it was mentioned with Dr. Bear as well, but when the, the Jews would never even write the name of God completely. When they did, they would only use the consonants, right? Yes, consonants. They would only use the consonants. And I'm told that whenever they wrote it, as they were writing down scripture, they would take a, a, a new quill pen. Yeah, we think pen, right? Okay. They would write the name and then they would discard it because his name was to be reverenced. And that is just being lost. It's being lost in Christianity where I've heard people talk about praying. Well, just come to God and talk to him like you talk to, to your good buddy. Well, yes and no. Um, I can talk to him at any time, and I can talk to him like I talk to a friend. But I must never lose sight of the fact 
that I'm talking to the God of heaven and earth. And he deserves my reverence and my respect. And um, though he's kind and loving, though he is a friend, and though, though I, I, I can speak with him frankly and openly, I, I still must never lose sight of. And when I look in, in the Bible and I see prayer, and I see even the, our Lord Jesus Christ giving the model prayer saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. You are God worthy. Your name is worthy of, of praise and honor. And, and, and friends, we just never need to, we got to keep sight of that. Even in a day in which, you know, the, Presidential hopefuls are, are called by their first name by everyone. And it's, it's uh, in a day when there is very little respect for people, we need to understand that God is always to be reverenced, always to be feared. Look, if you would, at our list again and see uh, the wonderful picture continue about God. He is the great, he is the Lord of he- God of heaven. He is the great and terrible God. He's the God then what? Okay, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. All right, so what do we find here? Well, he is a covenant-keeping God. You say, well, big deal. That's Old Testament truth. Yes, it is. But uh, the, the wording is God guards covenants. And, and the truth is, here it is, God keeps his word. That's it. If God says, this is what I'll do, that's what he'll do. So when he comes and he says, God, you're the covenant-keeping God, he, in essence, actually is acknowledging that where they're at and what has been happening to him is right. Okay, Lord, I'm a prisoner. I am a servant of a foreign king because you're a covenant-keeping God, and you told us that if we would, we would disobey, this is what would happen. You've also told us if we do right, and he's going to beg God for that. Notice how the prayer is going to show that, uh, that kind of understanding. Uh, let's see, verse, um, verse 8. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people. You know what he's appealing to? God is the covenant-keeping God. And here's what you said, Lord, to Moses. And God, I know you will keep your word. Now, let me tell you something. There's a reason to pray. And there's a reason to come to God and come boldly to the throne of grace and say, God, I know what you've said in your word, and here's the truth you promised. Because God keeps his word. Don't forget that. God keeps his word. Now, we can't just use the Bible and use it uh, in our, for our own means. I, oh, my. People just twist the word of God today in all sorts of ways. And it's not just happening in in churches where the word of God isn't preached in truth. It's, it even happens in churches like ours. People take verses and totally use them out of context and say, this is, my ver- this is why God called me to go to such and such a mission field. It has nothing to do with the place. God doesn't, in his word, give a verse to tell someone where they're supposed to be. 
Okay. I'm sorry if there's some missionary that said that recently. There is none. Because the Bible doesn't have that kind of direction, and you're misusing Scripture when you say that. And say, God worked in my heart through a passage. Okay, but don't tell me that this verse tells you you're supposed to be in Timbuktu. That's misusing the Scripture. But here's the truth. When God says, hey, be anxious for nothing. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then what's the promise? The peace of God passeth all understanding should keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So you can pray saying, God, I need, I need your peace to rule in my heart. I'm going to thank you for the situation you've given me. And, and Lord, I'm, I'm coming and I'm bringing my supplication to you. You know why? Because God is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his word. He has always kept his word. He will always keep his word. Now, I don't know about you, but I failed to keep my word sometimes in life. Not intentionally. Don't, don't intentionally tell people I'll, I'll be somewhere at a certain time, but sometimes things happen. I can't always keep my word, but God does. He always has. He always will. He is a covenant-keeping God. And so when he comes to this, this God, these things, he all lays out before God, saying, Lord, this is who you are. You are the one who keeps your promises. Uh, the Daily Bread told about a guy who marked his Bible in a rather strange way. At least it seemed like it to those who had uh, had the opportunity to see it and look through it. Next to some of the verses, he put the letter P. Others, he put two Ps. And other verses, he put three Ps. And when someone saw that, those markings, I mean, that's kind of a strange thing to have in someone's Bible, isn't it? So they asked him the question. They said, what's going on? Why do you have all those markings like that? Why do you have the single letter P? And why do you have two? And why do you have three? He says, well, a single P refers to a promise of God. Two refer to a precious promise. And three, to a precious promise proven. So in his Bible study, he found many promises. And he realized they don't all apply to him, but he wrote that in as a promise just to remind himself there's a God who gives promises and keeps promises. And then when he when he uh, found other promises that reveal God's unchanging love for all believers that are precious to him, he could write those, he, he put the two Ps in those things. And then uh, sometimes those verses that had two ended up getting a third put in. And the reason why is because he used those verses, he applied those verses, and he found God has proven himself to keep his promises. Now, I'm not suggesting you have to go through your Bible and do that but I, don't, I, I, I would not, I'd submit to you that that's not all that bad an idea. Because it's throughout the Bible, you can find a lot of verses that remind you God is a promise-keeping God. And so as he prayed, he reminds us he is the God that keepeth covenant. Then notice, there's, there's yet another thing. And it is what? And this is what he needed, that keepeth covenant and mercy. Um, a compassionate God. What an amazing thing. Think about this. God's in control. He's on the throne. He is the Lord God. Okay, not only is he the Lord God, but he is a great God. Nothing is beyond his ability. 
He is a God also that is deserving of reverence and respect because of who he is. He is a God that, uh, is, um, that keeps covenant and he keeps his promises, but he is also at the same time a God of mercy, kindness. I, I put the word a compassionate God. Um, hey, how many people do you know that are great but are also compassionate? How many people do you know that are very powerful but also really, really care for people? Come on, listen. Don't you, do you not get sick of it like I do when politicians talk about how they care about people? Because the truth is, seriously, nine times out of ten, 99 times out of 100, they don't care one iota. They're just trying to get votes. Not necessarily being critical of that because that's just the way the world works. But when we say God is merciful, we mean it. Look, he's a kind God. And that also should encourage me when I come to God in prayer to remember that God doesn't always deal with me exactly how I, how I deserve. Because God knows that that I have struggles, that I have difficulties, and that although I failed him, he's still a merciful God. And so, though he judges like he did the children of Israel, rightfully so, this, actually, this story of Nehemiah is is kind of a picture of, of God being a mighty God, but God also being a compassionate God. Because here is a guy that God didn't have to do one thing for he was being judged by God because his pe- he and his people had disobeyed and grieved God. He says that in these next verses. But he also knew that, that God cares. That God is kind. And so he could come to God and say, we may not deserve it, but Lord, God, I just need, I need your compassion. I love Lamentations 3. I, I, I love the song that's been written, Great is Thy Faithfulness, which, in which we find th- those words. Uh, but it, it's a real powerful passage where uh, Jeremiah writes this. He says uh, in verse 22, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. And then we have the words, great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him. To the soul that seeketh him, it is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. And he could say that even though Jeremiah was, was well in a pit for a long while and suffering, even though Jeremiah and God's people were in judgment and were already in captivity, um, he could share these words that God's mercies are still at work. Robert Robinson was an English clergyman. He lived in the 18th century. He was a gifted pastor. He was a, a wonderful preacher from what they say. He was a highly gifted poet, and he was a hymn writer. 
But after many years in the pastorate, his faith in God began to drift, and he left the ministry, and he ended up in France, uh, sadly indulging himself in sin, as some people have done. One night, he was riding in a carriage with a, a, a lady who had been recently converted to Jesus Christ. And as they struck up a conversation, she said she wanted to hear his opinion on some poetry that she was reading. And here's what she read. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace, streams of mercy never failing, call for hymns, psalms of loudest praise. When she looked up, she noticed Robinson was crying. What do I think of it, he said. I wrote it. But I've drifted away from God, and I can't find my way back. And this new believer said, don't you see? The way back is written in the third line of your poem. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Those streams are flowing. She said, the streams are flowing here in, in France, in Paris tonight. Those streams are still flowing in, in Franklin, Tennessee. Um, God is a, a kind God. Nehemiah needed that, and it gave him great boldness in prayer. Have you thought about your God lately? Have you considered who he is? And has it made a difference? Now, our, our list is done. It really is. In essence, we just have these pictures of God. But let me share a couple other thoughts. At the end of verse 5, he says, that keepeth covenant and mercy. And who does he keep covenant and mercy for? Those that love him and keep his commandments. And, um, and I, I put this down, and this may sound a little strange to you, but I, I, it's very true. He's a consistent God. He's a consistent God. He judges sin, that's true. But he also rewards righteousness as, as, well, as well, so that Nehemiah could be under the hand of God's judgment in serving a, a foreign king, and yet, have God bless him in such a way that he uses him and sends him and takes care of every detail so he can go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls that he is burdened about and concerned about. And God works. He's a consistent God. Look, he always does what's right. You can count on that. He is a God that, that if he said something, he'll do it, which we've already talked about, his promises. But he's a consistent God. Uh, he's a faithful God. The psalmist said this, I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. God is a faithful God. We can count on that fact. So, look, he will always keep covenant and always keep mer and show mercy to those that love him and observe his commandments. And if we'll make the right choices, we can count on God to be consistent. <laughs> unlike, unlike a parent, Unlike uh, people who are inconsistent many times in life, I don't know about you, but um, 
you know, as as a parent, you, you try to do everything fair and do everything the same, but it's hard to be consistent, isn't it? By the way, it's just hard to be consistent in all of life. We're so fickle, someone wrote. Uh, we're always, you know, changing all the time. But, uh, but God is consistent. The way he deals with people, the way he works. And we can count on that. And then the last thing I put down about this whole verse, because it's really based on not just the verse, but the chapter in the book. And it's just God is a caring God. He really does. God cares. He's a God of loving kindness. And so um, you say, well, where do you see a, a caring God? Well, I see it in the fact that Nehemiah came and preached thee, and then I see him pray, Lord, do a work in verse 11. And then in chapter 2, uh, a couple months later, as he's going about his duty and he stands before the king, God opens a door. And the king agrees. And Nehemiah goes, and God then works just over and over and over on his behalf in many different situations, in so many different ways, proving himself to be a mighty God, proving himself to be a God who keeps covenant, but proving to be a God who actually cares so that there's a reason for me to keep praying because God cares. There's a reason for me not to quit living the Christian life because, look, God cares. He notices, and God cares about me, and he cares about you. So, uh, never looked at verse 5 in that light before, quite honestly. I've just come and I've always seen a guy and a, a, a passage dealing with revival, and it's a great passage dealing with revival. But I'll tell you, verse 5 is a picture of who are you. And it should drive our prayer life, drive our activities. It should drive just every part of our life because we an amazing God. What God is that? The Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, the God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and keep his commandments. Um, he is worth serving and he's worth talking to because it makes a difference. I hope that encouraged you as it did me to see this verse in a little different light and not out of the perspective of this is just part of his prayer, but this was his picture and understanding of God and it should be ours. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, thank you so much.